welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. It's one of my favorite times of the year right now because for us, it's best places in the world to go in the coming year, time of year. For the last 20 plus years, Fromers has been putting out a look at which destinations are going to be especially interesting, especially inexpensive, especially accessible, which destinations are going to have some kind of change in the coming year that will make them notably visit worthy. Now, in the 20 years we've done been doing this, pretty much every other travel entity and their mother <laughs> has copied us, but they do it differently than we do. A, we never ever accept money from any destination to be on this list. We don't ask for nominations by PR agencies. Uh, we, we only use the Fromers journalists who are embedded in destinations all around the world to create this list. And this isn't a list of places that we just like. As I was saying earlier, every place on this list has to be notable in some way for the coming year. So we're going to discuss what's on this list. And to help me do that, I have Jason Cochran on the line. He is the editor-in-chief of Fromers.com. Hey, Jason. Hello. And I also have our managing editor for Fromers.com, Zach Thompson. Welcome, Zach. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, my pleasure. So let me get this Lollapalooza started. We put at the top of our list, and even though we said this list isn't in any particular order, I think we put Seville at the top of the list because the photos on this list also have to be beautiful. And there are few world destinations as beautiful as Seville. It has the Alcazar Palace. It has the extraordinary La Giralda Tower. It has this ancient barrio of medieval streets. But the reason it made our list this year is it is showing the way for how to be a an ecologically friendly, sustainable destination. They've input a system of trams and bike share programs to ease congestion and make uh, transportation around the city greener. They've done a lot to transform traditional buildings to make them more energy sustainable. And they're doing a lot to improve crowding and security. They're doing so much, actually, that they were named the European capital of smart tourism by the EU for 2023. So that's why it made our list. Who has the second one? I do. Uh, it's in Australia. And it's not uh, a city that a lot of people have actually been to. Australia is changing a lot right now. Melbourne just overtook Sydney in terms of population. It's now Melbourne is now the biggest city in, in Australia. But there's a third city that's sort of the sleeper city that's getting the Summer Olympic Games in 2032. So it's doing all these preparations. And that is the city of Brisbane, which some people mispronounce as Brisbane because that's how it looks. But it's Brisbane. And it's on the east right. coast of Australia in Queensland, sort of like in the middle of the coast. And um, it's really coming into its own. Now, I've, I've, if you've ever been to Brisbane in the past, you, you would have noticed it's really hard to get around as a tourist. There's this crazy river that goes through the middle of it and not a lot of bridges or tunnels across it. So you find yourself on one side of the river looking at the city or the other. 
And now they're finally fixing a lot of that. They've added all kinds of ferries. They're busy building a uh, cross-river rail rail link that will connect the two halves of the city. And they're embracing the water that runs through the town now that you can navigate it more easily as a tourist in a way that they never have before. Like a lot of the cities in the world, they've they've turned the, the waterfront into uh, kind of like fun shopping wharves and places to eat. It took a long time for Brisbane to get around to sort of becoming this kind of interesting, exciting city. And uh, now more and more people are going to use it as a jumping off point. You can obviously you can see the Great Barrier Reef. So that's a good gateway when you first fly into Australia, then you move on and then go to the reef. But Brisbane's a great place to start for that. And the Great Barrier Reef, of course, being endangered, now is a great time to get yourself out there to see it because we yeah. don't know how much longer this tipping point's going to last. But there's other yeah. stuff too. Like people used to love Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter, but now his kids are super famous. Yeah, his daughter, was it Bindi? She, I think she won Dancing with the Stars. And uh, Steve Irwin is a big his son. Uh, Robert is now a big TikTok star. Their zoo, the one that their dad ran with Terry Irwin, is just outside of Brisbane. People don't realize yeah. you can go see the Steve Irwin stuff. It's called Australia Zoo. It's in a town called Beerwa, which is about, I don't know, 45 minutes out of town. But there's lots to do around Brisbane as well, including uh, go to a lot of the beach towns nearby. Brisbane's one of those places that I think it's finally getting its time to shine. Yeah. And I know that the mayor of Brisbane was really, really pleased that they got this designation for us, which was fun. He's been trumpeting the news. Zach, I know you are going to talk about Panama City next. Why Panama City this year? Yeah. uh, Panama City, Panama, not Panama City, Florida. I think it's another destination that has been previously overlooked, but is finally getting the attention it deserves, um, possibly because it's easier than ever to get there. From the US, there's new flights, newly expanded international airport, there's new terminals, the cruise port has seen improvements. And when when travelers take advantage of this new ease of arrival, what they find is a really fascinating, fascinating city with gleaming futuristic skyscrapers downtown, balanced by a really great old quarter called Casco Viejo, sometimes um, people say Casco Antiguo, both are fine. Uh, it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site with wrought iron balconies and brick streets and um, colonial architecture and all these colorful houses that are that are settings for rooftop bars and um, lively parties with DJs, um, new hotels. It's just a place where there's this great, fascinating juxtaposition of um, history and modernity that is very exciting for travelers, I think. So that's why we picked Panama City. And you can also see the workings of the Panama Canal there, right? Yeah, right, I mean, exactly. That's a big it was, deal. It was kind of, yeah, before Panama City was kind of like uh, a way station on the way to the canals or other places in Central America. But now I think people have more reasons to stick around and check out Panama City bef- uh, before they head on to the canals. Right. Our next one is a place that I've been to several times, but I really fell in love with it on my last visit, which might have been about six years ago. I was invited to a wedding in Kentucky. Kentucky is our next pick. And I was blown away by the beauty of that state. I mean, the the wedding was out in the countryside. We passed horse farm after horse farm with these rolling green hills. It's just a a spectacularly beautiful part of the country. The reason it made our list this year is it's celebrating some big anniversaries. It's the 150th anniversary of the Kentucky Derby, so that should mean a bigger party than ever. And I got to say, 
when I went to this wedding, the father of the bride picked me up from the airport uh, a couple of days before the wedding and immediately took me to the racetrack. Uh. (laughs) I didn't even get to check into my hotel first because in Kentucky, horse racing is, is part of their blood. It's part of their culture. So this should be a big, big year. And let's hope they're able to finally fix the problems they've been having with uh, horses getting injured or even killed. The PGA will be having their major tournament in Kentucky. So that's also a, a big sporting event. And Kentucky has become a place where you go to taste bourbon. Well, I guess it always has been, but the uh, Kentucky Tourist Board has made that process easier by creating a trail uh, that leads you from famous distillery to famous distillery. And it's just a lot of fun to visit. So the great state of Kentucky is on our list for 2024. Who has the next one? I think it's me. So I have Guanajuato, Mexico, which is a central Mexican city. It's um, you know known for its history of silver mining and its really beautiful colonial architecture. We're presenting it as kind of an alternative to San Miguel de Allende, which is uh, about an hour's drive away, um, which is popular for its luxury hotels. It has vineyards and it has increasingly more um, tourists from the U.S. Guanajuato has fewer of those, but it has a lot to offer. Uh, there's winding, hilly streets with all this Baroque, neoclassical architecture, these beautiful plazas, lots of murals, and lots of really great cultural events and um, activities that help you appreciate Mexico, Mex- central Mexico. There's You can take these night tours w- led by university students called Estudiantinas. They wear period costumes and they perform music and tell these funny stories. Uh, you can sing and dance and drink along. Guanajuato has tons of museums. There's the former home of the famous Mexican muralist Diego Rivera. Huh. There's a creepy museum about mummies. There's a, a fa- <laughs> there's a famous visual and performing arts festival called Festival Internacional Cervantino, which is a big deal in cultural events in Latin America. So if if you really want to get a taste of Central Mexico's history and culture, you you, you can't do much better than Guanajuato, Mexico. Very cool. Okay, Jason, I think you got the most far-flung destination on this list, oh, the yeah. Cook Islands. Tell us about yeah, have that. Have either of you been to the Cook Islands? Never, no, never no. once. I have, and it's absolutely gorgeous. Now, people who don't know where they are, picture the Pacific Ocean and picture New Zealand in it. It's sort of two o'clock from New Zealand in the middle of the Pacific huh. Ocean, gotcha. just west of the Tahitian Island, Tahiti, French Polynesia. So it's just west of there. And um, it's gorgeous. It, it, there's not a lot to it. Most people spend their time on one this one main island that's not overcrowded, but it's one of those gorgeous turquoise places with lagoons around that you can walk out for you know 15 minutes and still not encounter a major wave. But it's it, it's a uh, there's this one this one road around the whole island. It's just not that busy, and it's not that busy because flights don't tend to go to it that much. You have to mean to go. Now, for years, some airlines would kind of stop over a couple times on the way to or from Australia, from the US. But, you know, just people would rather go to Tahiti or they would just throw on the way to Australia and they don't have the time. I knew we put this on the list, the Cook Islands, because, you know, it's time that people had a look at it. And it's going to be easier now because there is a flight that hasn't existed for about three decades uh, from Hawaii. You can go directly now from Honolulu to Rarotonga, which is the main island, 
as of last May of 2023. So it's much easier to go and you can, of course, get a look at Hawaii while you're on the way there or on the way back, which isn't so bad. But it's one of those South Pacific paradises. It's not overbuilt. It's very low slung. It's, it's very hospitable. And what people don't realize in the U.S. is it's extremely Western. I mean, yes, it's deeply Polynesian, but uh, everyone speaks English. They use the New Zealand dollar. They're very familiar with American culture. So it's a really great starter destination in a lot of ways for the South Pacific in that it's easy, it's familiar, it's affordable, it's absolutely gorgeous, and it's relatively un, un, um, spoiled, but it still has the infrastructure you want when you're a tourist or doing it for the first time. So we say the Cook Islands, it's, it's time to shine. Well, it's time to shine because it's finally much more accessible. It'll be easy to get there to this affordable paradise. I had to take two or three planes. And Cook Islands, by the way, used to have, I don't know, see if you could get one when you're there. One of their coins was triangular. So that's if you do go to Cook Islands, try to get your, I think they're out of commission now. So you have to look for them, but try to get yourself a triangular coin when you're in the Cook Islands. (laughs) The photo photo on our website of the Cook Islands is just gorgeous. The water is is beautiful. And I did the photo editing for this. Good job. Picking, thank you. Picking (laughs) just one was hard because every single photo I saw of the Cook Islands was spectacular. All right, another spectacular place, very in a very different way, is Dresden, and we are recommending it and Chemnitz, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. For what reason, Zach? Yeah, it's a German twofer. Dresden is, <laughs> a, of course, one of the most beautiful cities in Europe, um, but it was, you know, blown to smithereens during World War II and then locked behind the Iron Curtain for years during Soviet rule. And, and then for after German reunification in 1989, for years, Dresden was kind of like a, uh, one big construction site as the monuments and the palaces and the churches were being rebuilt from the rubble. And uh, finally, in recent years, all that construction and restoration and rebuilding has started has come to fruition and the city especially the old town is really back to its former 18th century baroque glory the the church is beautiful there's palaces there's an opera house where strauss's work premiered uh, there's a recently reopened residence schloss which is a a palace filled with all sorts of um, treasures from something called the Green Vault, which is full of glittering gemstones and all that. And, and But at the same time, uh, Dresden has a lively, youthful energy, kind of reminiscent of Berlin and what's called the New Town. Very hip and exciting with lots of clubs and things to do. So it's kind of back to its former former glory. And we, we, we recommend swinging by nearby is it Chemnitz? I've been saying Chemnitz, but I don't know, uh, uh, which is uh, going to be a 2025 European capital of culture in 2025. So in 2024, the city will be spiffing up old theaters and warehouses for all these inv- events and exhibitions. So it's an exciting time to watch that transformation take place and and, and see how in, in the 35 years since German reunification, those two cities have, have really transformed into modern cities that pay tribute to their history. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's go closer to home now. Jason, Santa Fe, New Mexico. Why this year? Primarily for its art. Uh, You know, we like to spread around the reasons that we choose these places. And there's a lot of really fun artistic development happening in in Santa Fe. This is, of course, in northern New Mexico. And it's uh, one of actually the highest altitude cities in the country. People don't realize. People always think of Denver, but there are actually other cities that are higher. 
but there's a lot going on. And uh, one of them is this brand new uh, contemporary art museum that opened uh, just uh, this last month in September, the New Mexico Museum of Art Bledum Contemporary. And they're at the same time, not just in that museum, but in other places, they're finding really interesting new ways to elevate Native American art. Uh, you know, so it's not, so it's, it's actually getting the platform it deserves, the respect it deserves in very high end ways. There's going to be a new indigenous art fair for contemporary art next year launching. It's a great time to go. Huh. What they want to do is they want to make it the art basel of uh, North American art. And if you don't know what that means, that's sort of a, it's where a lot of the world's extremely rich people go to buy their art. It's sort of the marketplace for high-end, excellent work. And uh, this is going to be the Native American entry into that, uh, which is a new thing. People haven't really categorized a lot of that art for some reason in the same world as they had a lot of the other stuff. So it's really, uh, it's great that that New Mexico is leading the way on this because, of course, there's such a rich, deep, long uh, indigenous culture there. And there's also going to be even an indigenous fashion week next year in May. Um, But of course, there's other things that happen all the time in Santa Fe, one of them is called the burning of Zozobra. It's something that's happened for about 100 years. And it's during Labor Day, they make this 50-foot-tall dummy, and they stuff it with what they call glooms. The glooms are paper evidence of things you'd just rather destroy, like divorce documents, parking tickets, you know, hmm. eviction notices. You stuff it into this dummy, and then, and then you burn the thing down in a group. <laughs> it's a symbol for a go-away. There's some other fun stuff happening too, though. If you want to, you know, keep it in the luxury indigenous uh, art type of thing, the Four Seasons Resort there is now offering really interesting excursions that take all day with a geologist and an archaeologist, so you can actually explore indigenous dwellings built about I don't know about a thousand years ago uh, with some with an expert, which is not something you often get to do. And last, we didn't mention it in the best places to go feature on Bromers.com, but if you loved Oppenheimer. Not too far away from Santa Fe, a day trip away, is Los Alamos, where, of oh. course, his, uh, his secret lab was. And it's now a national wow. historic site, and you can go visit what's left of it. Very cool. cool. All right. Also in the U.S., Zach, you're going to present Craters of the Moon National Monument and Preserve. Why are we recommending that? That's in Idaho. And in May, Craters of the Moon is celebrating its 100th anniversary as a national monument. Calvin Coolidge designated it that on May 2nd, 1924. And I don't know, a lot of people don't know much about Craters of the Moon because it's kind of uh, remote, but it's just a spectacular natural wonder with all these geological formations, sand dunes, peaks, lava fields, the remains of like cinder cones, uh, a 1,200-year-old tree. The landscape is very otherworldly. It kind of looks like the moon. NASA certainly thought thought, thought so. Apollo 14 astronauts trained there in 1969 to get an idea for what the moon would be like. And um, so Craters of the Moon is celebrating its 100th anniversary as a national Monument next year, starting in May, with all these special events um, honoring the the place's uh, cultural history, its wilderness, and most importantly, its uh, night sky. It's a great place for stargazing. The National Park Service says Craters of the Moon has some of the darkest night skies of any national park unit. So they have these really fun star parties where uh, in the summer with uh, rangers and astronomers where you can look at the heavens and commune with nature. <laughs> uh, there will be more details about what what specifically other events are happening as we get closer to May. No, I was going to say, uh, I, I put this up on, on my personal Facebook and 
the people who were most excited about our list were the ones who had been to Craters of the Moon. Oh, really? And said that it was one of the most spectacular places they've ever been in the United States. And they kind of feel proud of having gone there because nobody knows about yeah. it. So, so they were glad that we, we shone a spotlight on it. Our next one, I, I understood why we had to do it. And I was I was in, in favor of it, but it also kind of broke my heart. This summer, there were such horrendous climactic conditions in Europe that people who went to the classic summer destinations there, like the Greek islands, uh, well, I went to France and experienced 106 degree temperatures. It just, it, it just has become clear that, that many parts of Europe aren't going to be viable uh, for summer travel going forward. And so we wanted to think about, well, where should people go instead? And so we thought the Scottish islands. First of all, they never go above 60 degrees Fahrenheit or rarely do. So you're going to be comfortable when you're there in summer, and that's increasingly important. But they're also spectacularly beautiful places with wild Shetland ponies and craggy cliffs and adorable little towns. Uh, you go to certain of the islands like Islay for whiskey tastings uh, at these fascinating distilleries. Other islands, you can see former Viking settlements. Other ones, you go to explore prehistoric sites. I mean, there's just so much to do in the islands that are known as the Orkneys, the Shetlands, and the Hebrides. Uh, just, just a lot to see and do in Scotland. And so that's why it made our list this year. Now, Zach, back to the U.S. Yeah. And Glendale, this one, Arizona. Yeah. And this one will be hot in summer. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So this is a, a Glendale, Arizona is a Phoenix suburb and it's getting the globe's first Mattel Adventure Park, which will be mostly indoor and therefore air conditioned, which is a must in Phoenix. Yeah. So uh, it's it's this huge indoor theme park, mostly indoor, uh, dedicated to Mattel intellectual property. So in addition to two Hot Wheels roller coasters um, a, and a climbing structure inspired by the Uno card game, He-Man, Masters of the Universe laser tag, there will be most importantly a full-scale Barbie beach house where visitors will be able to raid Barbie's closet, dine at a rooftop <laughs> restaurant. I'm sure everything's like a wash in pink and meet Barbie yourself via hologram. Uh, it's basically as close as you can get to Barbie land from the Barbie movie uh, in real life. And it's part of this new uh, massive 60-acre complex called Vi Resort, which is also set to open in late 2024 out near State Farm Stadium where the Arizona Cardinals play. And the Vi this Vi thing is going to be the biggest uh, hotel in Arizona. There will be 1,100 guest rooms, an outdoor concert amphitheater, a party island with a man-made beach, a dozen restaurants, a, a sky bar floating in 130 feet up, a tethered hot air balloon you can get on. It's a true like pleasure oasis in Arizona. Well, and it's interesting to me because... This may be the first of many Mattel theme parks. I Absolutely. mean, it brings a whole different iconography to the theme park experience. Jason, you're, you're Mr. Theme Park. What do you think about this development? It's uh, what they call in the theme park business IP, and that means intellectual property. And everyone is going in that direction to, you know, huh. brands that you know and love. They've done Thomas the Tank Engine. They've done Peppa the Pig. Disney doesn't add anything anymore that's not themed off of something they like to sell more of. So yeah, that that is you're right. That's the big trend in theme parks. IP. 
Yeah. And especially Art- after the success of the Barbie movie, I think um, Mattel oh, yeah. will, be, will be selling all their IP they got. Anything in the, in the, <laughs> anything in the vault. Yeah. All right. Jason Nepal. You know, I felt like Nepal used to be top of mind for many, many adventure travelers. And people still obviously want to climb Everest. But I, I feel like I've been hearing less about Nepal, but we think that may change, right? Yeah. You're, I mean, you're right. In the old days, in the 60s, it was famous to, for the hippies would go and hang out in Kathmandu. Over time, it became about Mount Everest, because that's what you see in the headlines all the time. Most of most people don't go to Mount Everest. They might look at it on a sightseeing flight, but that's a very niche thing to do in Nepal. The, the, the rest of the country is full of these gorgeous old towns with these wooden temples, and uh, there's lots and lots of hiking treks which are established trails that you take to this area or around this area. That's what attracts most of the people to Nepal. Um, And they've been having a hard time, not just because of COVID, because it's this little tiny landlocked mountain kingdom north of India. They weren't getting a lot of people that they used to get because of COVID, of course. It slowed everything down. There was also a terrible earthquake in 2015 that wiped out a town at the end of one of its most important treks. It's a town that I had actually been to on that trek before. So they said, we've got to do something. We've got to rebuild tourism. And they are. One of the things they've done, which I think is going to be a really good thing, is they've insisted that if you're going to go on a trek now, you've got to hike with a local guide. Not very expensive in Nepal. And and the mountain people of Nepal, by the way, the Sherpas, are have been famous for centuries for their their, their their hardiness, their cleverness, their friendliness. Sherpas are great people. But now you'll be able to hire someone or need to, to be with while you go and you know walk for several days along this trek. You learn about the country, your safety will be looked after. All these things were lacking before. It was very willy-nilly before. Here's a permit, huh. go, we hope you come back. It's kind of what I experienced when I was there. <laughs> um, but at the same time, they're doing something that a lot of smaller Asian countries have been doing We'll find out what the ramifications are later, but they're turning to China for investment. A few years ago, we had Cambodia on this list because China was building all these resorts and casinos in Cambodia and really changing the character. Here, China, to expand its soft power, uh, they've opened a couple airports in Nepal that they didn't have before, which was very necessary because the one in Kathmandu, sometimes if, if the clouds got too thick or the smog got too thick, you would be stuck in town for a few days until it lifted. There was no way in or out of the country if it wasn't by road. I got stuck huh. in Kathmandu myself a few days. So they built two new airports that they're going to have a hard time paying for, but it's going to help people get in and out of the country that weren't able to before. They're doing some other stuff. You know, they're adding a, they added an observation tower in Kathmandu and bus attractions, and they're doing treks and heritage tours themed to LGBTQ people in Nepal. It's a very progressive country in a lot of ways uh, in, in, in Asia. So they're doing a lot of things over this 10-year plan to make tourism easier, safer, uh, build their infrastructure. And we're just now at the beginning of that. So Nepal, if you don't go this year, I know it's a, it's a tricky ask because it's a long way away. Put it on your radar because it wants to be on your radar and it's doing lots of things now to try to invite people to have a more comfortable stay. Interesting. All right. Our next destination is going to be celebrating a very important birthday from a woman who I know made my life much happier when I was a young girl and and did the same for tens of thousands of Japanese schoolgirls. And I'll explain that in a second. Her name was Lucy Maud Montgomery. It's the 150th anniversary of her birth. 
And she was the author of Anne of Green Gables. So the destination, of course, is Prince Edward Island, where that book and the whole series of the Anne of Green Gables books take took place, where she lived, and where people come for literary pilgrimages. Interestingly, a lot of them are Japanese because Anne of Green Gables is the book that they use to teach English in Japan. Uh, almost every Japanese schoolchild reads Anne of Green Gables. So when you're in Canada, in Prince Edward Island, you're often surrounded by Japanese tourists. In honor of this anniversary, they're bringing back what had been the longest running musical on earth, according to the Guinness Book of World Records. And yes, it's about Anne of Green Gables. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of special tours. There'll be other types of celebrations. But frankly, it's always just a wonderful thing to go to that peaceful, gorgeous, friendly island, a place that, that came to life in those books, but comes to life even if you never read those books. I agree. So, I love Prince Edward Island. It's beautiful. Yeah. So Anne of Green Gables and Prince Edward Island was our next pick. Then we have a place in Alaska that I'm not even going to try to pronounce. <laughs> Jason, how the heck do you say this one? Ukiagvik. Ukiagvik. You might know it from its earlier name, Barrow, which was the name it had for a little while uh, when America took it over because it's in Alaska. But Ukiagvik, uh, it's about 300 miles north of the Arctic Circle. You can only get there by plane. There's only about 4,500 people living in it. And almost all of them are uh, can trace their heritage back, not just centuries, but sometimes thousands of years. Because it's a very, you know, uh, it's of course it's American, but it's a very it's a very indigenous city as well. One of the oldest inhabited cities there is in the United States. In, in the summertime, well, the reason we want people to go, not just because it's that alone is fascinating, all those things I just said, but there's also a TikTok element here because of how northerly it is and how climate change is melting the permafrost all around it. And so the, the the soil, which used to be hard almost all year round and place where you could store food and all these things underneath the ground, it's becoming soggier and soggier. And so the buildings are starting to lean a little bit. Uh, they're having to move this to, to, from that part of town to this part of town because of erosion. So we don't know how long this is going to be able to last the way it is. So um, huh. you, you go, obviously, to, to experience this incredible old culture, but you also go because climate change is making it urgent. This has entered American history in a lot of ways. People remember Will Rogers, who was, of course, the, probably the biggest star in America in the early 1930s. A movie star. He was on the radio. He could talk to a president and insult him, and the president would still do what he said. He was very, very influential. This is where he died. He was he was a big explorer. He was in a plane oh. with his friend Wiley Post, and the plane crashed not too far away from what was then Barrow. There's, of course, a monument there. Um, they even had to move the monument because of erosion. There's, but there's a National Historic Landmark uh, to the Bjornik people, so you can see one of the earliest examples of indigenous culture in North America. And there's lots of fun things to do. They've just now opened a brand new visitor center, so they are eager to receive you right now. Even though things are getting soggy, they still want visitors. They built this center. Um, there's this great hotel called the Top of the World. It's not the most luxury thing you've ever been to, but it's so much fun. And they, they serve bowls of reindeer soup, which is yeah. better than the <laughs> whales that a lot of the indigenous folks eat. If you're not in the mood for, yeah. for something like that, you can you can have some reindeer, which I'm sure a lot of more people would be willing to have. In the summertime, the, the sun doesn't go down. In the wintertime, oh. the sun doesn't come up. Uh, so pick your, do you want your northern lights or do you want to be able to look around for snow owls and, and polar bears? So that's our, uh, that's our Alaskan choice, Ukiagvik. 
also known right. as Barrow. And we ended the list uh, with the place we want to support, Maui, Hawaii. As you heard, if you listen to this podcast regularly, we had the wonderful Jeannie Cooper on, one of the authors of our Hawaii guidebook. Uh, she went into detail about why it's okay to go back to Maui. Devastating fires in 2023, but they only affected one portion of the island. And the rest of the island is still open, still welcoming, still wonderful to visit. And because 90 cents out of every dollar earned on Hawaii, Hawaii's five islands, or actually more than that, but on Hawaii's islands, comes from tourism. So uh, they're going to be in big trouble if we stay away. And since there's no reason to stay away, we ended our list this year with Maui. And we're going to end this conversation on that note, too. Thanks, guys, for appearing on the Frommer Travel Show. Thanks. Thanks so much for having us. Safe travels. We started today's show by talking about Fromer's best places to go in 2024 list. Well, we have an admission to make. We are not alone in putting out these lists, although I think we may be doing it for the longest time. We've, we've been putting out these lists for almost 25 years now. National Geographic our esteemed colleague started doing their best places to go list in 2012. And to honor that tradition, they have put out a spectacularly beautiful book, a, a massive coffee table book called Best of the World, 1000 Destinations of a Lifetime, which curates the best of the best from uh, the last decade plus two years. I think when we look at the last decade, you know, the, the, the COVID years put a kink into things. So it's the last 12 years. To help me discuss this wonderful new book, I have Allison Johnson on the line from Nat Geo. Hey, Allison, thank you so much for appearing on the Firmer Travel Show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So this was a massive undertaking, although I guess it was made a little easier by the fact that you could refer to the, the best of lists from the last decade or yes, so, 12 yeah. years. Uh, were there places uh, from the last decade that were great at the time, but couldn't make this book? You know, there were a few. When we started working on this book, we looked at, like you said, the past decade and all of the best of the world list we'd created, as well as best of content at National Geographic since 2012. And that meant refact-checking, revetting everything to make sure it truly, one, existed still, and two, um, lived up to the best of standard. And quite frankly, a lot of things changed because of the pandemic. And so that was a big factor in the making of this book. Another factor- How, how did things change? Can you give a, sure. an example? So um, there were some hotels and restaurants, for instance, that had just unfortunately closed due, the, sure. due to the pandemic. Um, travel right. restrictions in certain places- made certain destinations, not as a whole, but you know, if we were sending you there to see a certain park or certain space, some of them were just off limits to travelers at the time. And we didn't know when they wow. would reopen. So we had to consider right. that as a factor. So we definitely had to revet a lot of places through that lens. And so things fell off the list due to 
those instances. But for the most part, most of the places we had declared best of the world, we could truly say still lived up to that best of the world name. A few fell off the list because the year they were named best of the world, it was for something very timely, you know, like a festival that was happening that year. And so they couldn't be included um, because we do want this to be your evergreen guide that you can turn to for the next decade and make your bucket list um, using this book too. So we wanted to make sure everything was not only best of the world, but thought future forward that it would continue to be best of the world for years to come. Well, like so many in your series, it's a book to dream on. It's filled with gorgeous photos. And I love the fact that you have a best of the world for families section. Uh, Tell us about what went into making those choices. What makes something best in the world for people with kids? Yeah. So when we think about family friendly, it's really important to National Geographic to reach every traveler and families are traveling. And we want to make sure that people feel like they can bring their children along and expose them to different parts of the world, but in a way that makes it easy. So family-friendly destinations, we were looking at the activity level, making sure it would be easy for kids for of all ages, age appropriateness in the what they're seeing and doing. And so give us a, an example or two of what's in that section. Sure. So um, one of the great things that we have in that section, for instance, you can go glamping in Maine which is a super fun way to expose your kids to the great outdoors. But it's a way that if your kid might not be ready for a full camping experience or they just, it's the first time they're camping and you're not sure they'll do so great in the wilderness in a tent, it's a little camping light in that you have an on-site restaurant to go to, kind of built-in activities that are curated for you. So that's one example of that. Another good example, um, and this is for older kids, we actually have a top 10 list in here of the best college basketball towns. And so that's a really fun one um, for families who love sports, who want to go kind of make a road trip or a bucket list. You know, there are people who try to get um, to every baseball stadium in the country. This is kind of in a similar vein. So there are things that you can kind of do together as a family um, and range in ages as well for families um, and hiking and light activities as well throughout that chapter. Right. Well, those are two very accessible adventures, which makes sense because they're for families. What is the most far-flung, you know, you're not supposed to use the word exotic anymore for for, uh, many reasons, but if we still were using that word, (laughs) what what would be the most kind of uh, dream-worthy adventure in this book? Uh, You know, one of the most far flung, I would say, is Bhutan. And there's multiple reasons for that. One, it's it's a very tough place to get to in terms of travel time. And also they, they limit tourism visas. And part of the reason they do that is to protect the heritage and culture of Bhutan. But that makes it this really exceptional destination when you get there because you're truly having an immersive cultural experience of what this Bhutanese traditions are like. You have monasteries to visit. We even recommend um, doing a homestay rather than a hotel while you're there. And it's really just an adventure of a lifetime in a far-flung region of the world that's truly different from anything you'll see at home. And I think there's a lot of, even just the flight in and how you land through the Himalayas, it's just spectacular to get to. Well, it's, yeah. You know, Bhutan almost made our list this year because they had put in a tourist visa cost Mm -hmm. that was eye-wateringly expensive. And about 
two or three weeks ago, they 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 cut it in half. I guess it was it was dissuading too many people from mm-hmm. visiting. Yeah. Well, many, many congratulations on another very beautiful book. Once again, it's called Best of the World, 1,000 Destinations of a Lifetime. Thank you so much, Allison, for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you all for listening. Uh, That's it for this week's show. But may I say, if you are traveling, I wish you a hearty bon voyage. See you next week. Watching K.